Keep America great. I know a predator when I see one. They want to defund the police. I will draw on the best of us. Republicans reject science. Four more years. Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Rick Perlstein, who is the author of a fantastic new book that's just been released, Reaganland. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Hi, Will. Glad to be here. Um, So the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is, uh, what prompted you to uh, write the book? Yeah, my my, and my answer these days is you're going to have to ask my shrinks because, (laughs) of course. (laughs) <laughs> uh, this is one of those things that sedimented deeply in myself that I can't quite figure out, but I am absolutely fascinated as a liberal with uh, the right, uh, the American right. Uh, I could give lots of kind of uh, paths through it, but one, one thing is when I was um, quite young, probably an adolescent, I became obsessed with the, the 60s in America, which of course was this unbelievably melodramatic time in which kind of revolutions were happening nearly every week. And I grew up in the 80s, and the, contra- the contrast to me was very startling. You know, history was incredibly melodramatic then. And I spent a lot of time in used bookstores, you know, buying books, you know, by, by and about the Black Panthers. Um, but I think I kind of picked up a thread of 60s history that wasn't as uh, evident to people who, you know, came of age during the 60s. Because there really was a, a hegemonic and you know, dominant narrative about what the 60s was about. And that was basically that it was this time of um, progressive movement change, you know, the civil rights uh, movement and the anti-war movement. And that was very, it absolutely, sat, I don't know about there, but it absolutely saturated representations of the 60s, you know, here in the States. Mm-hmm. And I think coming from a kind of post baby boomer generation, I appreciated very early on much more that this was really kind of a civil war in America between left and right. And, you know, got to the place where I realized that in a lot of ways, uh, the right won, you know, with, um, you know, Nixon through Reagan, obviously the story that I tell in my book, but there were other, uh, the other elements that kind of brought me to this work that are even a little bit stranger. Uh, we have this phenomenon in America, I think less so in England, of uh, television preachers, right, who often come yeah. from the South, and you know these sweaty gentlemen in white suits who, you know, talk about you know healing the sick, you know, and you know we're very very emotional, and um, you know really kind of had this base among uh, the rural South, and you know I grew up in you know the North and mm-hmm. a suburb city of Milwaukee, Jewish, and uh, I would watch these guys, you know, on early Sunday mornings. And to me, there was a certain voyeuristic fascination, which I think ended up uh, with an appreciation of, you know, just how diverse America Mm -hmm. is. And a, a, a while back, I actually fell in love with a book that uh, I read uh, kind of between working on my first and second books called Tribes of America. Hmm. And it was a book um, of uh, kind of an an American new left veteran named Paul Cowan, who wrote for a newspaper called The Village Voice, kind of a left-wing alternative newspaper. Uh, And he would go around the country and, and, and report on these sort of civil wars, kind of cultural civil wars all through the 70s. You know, the Boston busing crisis, You know, uh, uh, the, the coal miners in West Virginia that I write about in my book, Invisible Bridge, protesting against liberal textbooks. And I just became almost 
uh, an anthropologist of, of my fellow Americans, you know, uh, absolutely riveted by the fact that people coming from such different worldviews, you know, could try to kind of body together as a nation. And, you know, kind of put that all together with the fact that I always have been uh, an activist-minded liberal, right? Yeah. And thinking about social change, and you get into the, 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 the aspect of my work that really does try to understand the right, um, you know, for purely programmatic reasons in order to kind of understand how they succeeded, what kind of role models they might offer, you know, what kind of uh, sort of structural weaknesses, they, what weaknesses they might put forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it all adds up to this series of books that I've been working on now uh, since 1997, uh, The Rise of the Right in America from the 50s uh, to the present. And then also the journalism I do about the right and about the Democrats and their failures and successes um, taking on the right. Mm -hmm. Um, now, of course, uh, this year we've seen the um, US presidential election between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And a lot of people make uh, comparisons between um, Trump and Reagan. Mm -hmm. I, I just wondered how deep do you think those comparisons are? Because uh, earlier today I was watching um, a clip from the uh, New Hampshire primary, the 1980 Republican New Hampshire primary, uh, that famous moment when uh, Reagan said, you know, I paid for these microphones, you know, right. uh, trying to um, let his uh, competitors speak. And I, I couldn't really imagine Trump ever doing something like that. So, I mean, how deep do you think the, the similarities are? You mean, I could, you couldn't imagine Trump doing what? Well, I couldn't imagine no him... Power? <laughs> I couldn't imagine him uh, being in, in any way, perhaps, um, you know, a bit more supportive towards his impairments in, in, in a kind of sign of more uh, uh, traditional oh. political way, you know, like uh, allowing his uh, opponents to, to speak. Well, that was, I mean, I, I write about that particular incident in the book in, in, in some detail, and it was in a lot of ways that that moment, which is too complicated to get mm. into in a lot of ways, was kind of a cunning political journey mm. trick kind of taken against his main opponent who was you know, George H.W. Bush. And you know, his, um, his basically his, his attempt to kind of get all the other um, opponents, you know, like it was like yeah. a five or five primary onto the stage was an attempt to, um, uh, basically um, put on the back foot George W. Bush, kind of turning him into a guy who was in kind of a six-way tie for second place instead yeah. of, you know, uh, a one-on-one -on -one fight. Uh, but it was very a very clever thing and a very Reagan-like thing in that this cleverness was not necessarily kind of engineered by Reagan, but his kind of advisors acting on his behalf. In a way, the thing that that's most non-Trump-like about that particular um, business was that he was kind of acting at the behest of uh, his, he was playing a role kind of scripted for him by his advisors. Mm. Uh, and then you get into the issue of Ronald Reagan being this guy who came up in, in Hollywood and kind of took direction really well, which is one of the ways in which, you know, people have disparaged him. But in a sense, you could also say he was very good at delegating, right? Mm. Um, I don't know, it's, it's a very complicated question. And obviously I've been called upon to uh, answer it all, all the time it would help to answer it for you and your audience if you give me maybe a little bit of your understanding when you say compare Reagan and Trump, are you saying you're hearing that they had similarities? Is your understanding that they were similar, that they were different? I mean, how do you understand this? Uh, well, I mean, 
I don't think that they were uh, particularly similar, but in, in terms of similarities, I was thinking, um, I, I think there is a somewhat uh, shallow, perhaps, comparison in that they were from, uh, as you mentioned, um, Reagan, of course, starting films before he got yeah. into politics, and Trump is very sort of, yeah. yeah. And uh, Trump is a very uh, showman-like uh, way of presenting himself. So I think, and, and of course, there's the, the, the slogan as well, Make America a Great Slogan. Uh, I think that some people perhaps view them as, in, in, in terms of just a sort of like a shallow, just looking at the, the images they projected, as similar. So, I mean... That's interesting. In America, I think people in the media or even kind of podcasters that I've interviewed tend to be more interested uh, in foregrounding uh, the differences, mm. like kind of what happened to, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that goes on in America. There's a lot of discourse of conservatives in the previous generation were kind of decent and civil. And the ones that in, in our own generation are kind of extremist louts. Mm. That was even going on in, in, in um, Reagan's generation and even before that in Goldwater's generation. So there's this strange kind of eternal return about that. Um, but it's a very complicated question. I mean, in a sense, you know, you could write a whole book about it. Um, there are some things that are very, um, th some very important similarities. I mean, of course, you know, um, in policy, you know, I mean, uh, the only thing that, that that Donald Trump was able, the only legislation he was able to get in get in place was, you know, a massive tax cut for you know business and the rich, mm -hmm. which is clearly, you know, the absolute center of Ronald Reagan's. Um, you know, uh, political appeal, right? Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, people also forget how good Ronald Reagan could be. Uh, he's remembered this, as this guy who put up an always a genial front, how good he could be at scowling, you know, mm. and kind of disparaging his, his ideological adversaries. Uh, and, but, um, you know, like I said, we, I, I usually end up talking about, you know, the similarities and kind of because that's kind of the, the, I think that's the work that I have to do as, a, yeah. as an interpreter of political history is to kind of show that there's been a continuous movement. And that even though um, a lot of the things we see in Trump's um, political movement uh, seem very feral and kind of loudish, it's very important to remind people, and as I do in the book, that the conservative uh, upsurge in the, you know, in, in America in the late 1970s that I'm writing about, you know, was often quite quite as ugly as mm. the sort of things we see now. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing things like comparing QAnon, you know, the conspiracy yeah. theory that the Democrats are all kind of secret secret traffickers and child sex rings, mm. to uh, the discourse that was going on about gays and lesbians, especially gay men in America in the late 70s, that they were recruiting young boys or even recruiting young boys to murder them. You know, so mm. there was this crazy conspiratorial thinking, you know, that the, the, the Democrats had the secret agenda to force gay teachers and, you know, gay sex into the classroom and things like that. Mm. Um, but then the big difference comes in where Reagan, uh, you know, was kind of commanding uh, a coalition that was full of these ugly elements but was able to kind of present this public face that was almost always kind of optimistic, you know, and genial. Yeah. And um, so that's the what I what I would say usually for an American audience. But then I would always end up pivoting and point out that, you know, just to take one uh, example, um, you know, Ronald Reagan had this enormous affection for immigrants and immigration, mm. 
right? And it spoke to his kind of almost childlike kind of jingoistic patriotism and his joy that people wanted to come to America. And there's this really remarkable moment um, uh, in the 1980 election in the Texas primary between George Bush, who we've talked about, mm -hmm. and Ronald Reagan. They were the two last men standing where they're in a debate together in Texas and they're kind of competing with each other to see who can say the nicest things about you know, not just immigrants, but undocumented or what, mm. what we call then illegal aliens, right? It's not because, you know, Ronald Reagan was this kind of bottomlessly kind gentleman, but, you know, kind of, um, that was, that was, you know, what he felt about that, you know, one issue. And he, you know, you would never see Ronald Reagan, you know, saying, uh, you know, all the Mexican, Mexico is sending its rapists. Yeah. But by the same token, he would say absolutely feral, nasty things about the kind of thing people he considered, you know, enemies mm -hmm. of all that was good and true, uh, quite all the time. But then mostly he would say these things kind of in private, you know, yeah. these were kind of private beliefs, right? So um, I do a lot in the book pointing out a very important dynamic in Reagan's uh, political career and his presidency, which is that he was always kind of surrounding himself from by staffers retainers who saw their job as kind of protecting Reagan from himself, yeah. protecting the public from this side of Ronald Reagan, you know, but he was talking about the Soviet Union, you know, as, uh, you know, one, one, one quotation I have in the book is him giving a big speech and, you know, that drove his uh, advisors to, abstract, to distraction, claiming that the Soviet Union intended to set a deadline by which America would surrender or face nuclear war. Right. I mean, that's as yeah. crazy as anything Donald yeah. Trump would say. Right. But that was the kind of thing he tended to say kind of only once because his advisors would sort of read him the riot act. Right. But, yeah. you know, the, the, there's a whole there's a whole book that came out uh, while Ronald, Re Ronald Reagan was president called uh, Ronald Reagan's Reign of Error, which kind of co collected his sort of gaffes. Mm. And, you know, the difference with Donald Trump is these weren't gaffes. I mean, these were mm. basically things that were, you know, an absolute absolute central part of his public transcript. And. Like I say, this is complicated, right? Yeah. But it's a really important, fundamental, important historical insight about uh, how the conservatism of that time evolved into the conservatism of our own time. Hmm. And that's that um, it was seen as fundamentally important for all conservative leaders uh, to kind of figure out a way to um, mobilize the power of populist demagoguery hmm. right um but also to at the same time manage to keep a respectable public face you know for the media yeah. for moderate voters and to basically preserve the sense of their voters that they themselves were not bigots hmm. that they themselves uh uh could vote for uh, a ronald reagan you know or a mitt romney or george w bush or uh, you know a Jeb Bush, you know, yeah. in 2016, without fear of of their own self-image as decent people, right? And that's where you get into this very pregnant seam in American political history of the the dog whistle. So so that's why the, the dog whistle inve is invented. So you know Donald Trump puts away the dog whistle and he he just brings out a train whistle. Hmm. And you could say, oh, that's an idiosyncratic feature of Donald Trump and 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 his followers who, you know, are much willing, more willing to, you know, own up to the idea that, that white 
you know, Christian America is under threat. Mm -hmm. But the fascinating thing and the important thing is all these sort of Reaganite conservatives who, you know, sometimes the same people, people from the same political lineage who flocked under the banner of Ronald Reagan were perfectly glad to accept this guy as a leader and sometimes went in that direction themselves. And they took Donald Trump as a permission that this work that they've been doing to, for decades was no longer necessary. Hmm. And my favorite example of this is, of course, the very, very powerful American conservative senator from South Carolina, which of course is one of the most racist states, Lindsey Graham. Uh, you know, he ran against an African-American uh, for Senate and won, and they did a debate, debate together. And one of the moderators asked Lindsey Graham, can you assure African-American men that they're safe in that they're going to be safe from the police in South Carolina, yeah. right? That they're safe, hmm. uh, which is obviously a top of mind issue for African-Americans in America, given all the, given all the police violence and shootings. Hmm. And he said, oh, sure, they're perfectly safe as long as they're not liberal. And, you know, that really, that kind of language really resembles the kind of um, 1950s kind of lynch mob language, you know, that we associate with the, the resistance to civil rights in America. You know, this kind of, Black people should know their place. Black people are second-class citizens. So the fact that he's able to kind of proudly say that speaks to uh, a Republican party that made this kind of transformation from we're perfectly willing to weaponize racism, but under the, under, under, you know, kind of under the surface to one that's just perfectly willing to weaponize racism. Yeah. Um, one thing, um, and you said this uh, in a, an interview with the um, Commonwealth uh, Club of California, you said that one thing that Reagan had was a, a combination of venality and innocence. Do you think that that's something that he, that was really self-evident um, with him, that was particularly uh, apparent with him? Or do you think that it's something that most, if not all, politicians have to one extent or another. No, I think it was it was it was a really unique quality that he and 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 I'm very interested in um, studying political leadership as a way of uh, the, polit the way political leaders um, are able to kind of model kind of psychic states about you know kind of approaches mm. to the world that are attractive at a very deep level to the mass electorate, right? So, you know, Nixon had his famous resentments, right? The mm -hmm. idea that the liberal snobs are looking down at you. And that was obviously an entailment of his own biography, right? Yeah. They're always the cool kids were kind of like, you know, making fun of him. And he was able to appeal to people as a politician who felt their whole lives that the cool kids were kind of making fun of them and that they were the silent majority and that these kind of liberal elites who were kind of embracing things like civil rights and the anti-war movement were um, the same kind of, same kind of people who joined the Communist Party in the 40s, or um, you know, joined the right social clubs in college, right? Yeah. So, um, in the same way, in a different way, right? Ronald Reagan, with his remarkable guileless innocence, his belief that no matter what he did and said, he was acting from a pure motive, which really was kind of sort of sincere and and quite remarkable and quite you know purblind at the same time. Um, that in America that was reckoning with um, the shattering of its own innocence, mm. Watergate, you know, in Vietnam, in the collapse of its economy, you know, in the same way kind of the, 
the British economy, you know, was was in the late seventies was kind of dealing with the shattering yeah. of its own, you know, innocence. That a figure who um, basically uh, was always able to see um, everything he did and everything his followers did as coming from, you know, a place of decency and goodness was just remarkably powerful. And that was something he kind of introduced to conservative politics. I can't think of any figure who had that ability to kind of, um, you know, radiate that kind of genial optimism in the face of chaos. Hmm. And that was really special to his movement. Uh, and that's something that, you know, the people who discounted him were never able to understand. You know, I tell a story in the book that when he was, um, you know, began his general election campaign in 1980, you know, after the convention, he gave a speech to a veterans group, a conservative veterans group, the veterans of foreign wars. And one of the things he said was that Vietnam was a noble cause. And that was widely understood to be a gaffe. You know, why would he bring up this wound in America? Everyone knows that Vietnam was shameful, right? Yeah. And here's Ronald Reagan saying it was noble. And, you know, universally, the pundits are like, wow, if he keeps talking like this, he's going to lose the election without grasping that there was this longing for someone to say that, mm. right? Someone to give people permission to believe that uh, America was not the America that you see in, you know, apocalypse now, you know, <laughs> like yeah. the, or, 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 you know, like our people who are, you know, like roasting, you know, peasants with flamethrowers <laughs> and palm. But this was the America that defeated Hitler. You know, this was the America that, you know, conquered racism, which was mm. his very naive insistence and belief, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, the movement there, and something that I think is particularly interesting that you touch upon in the book is how Reagan constructed a um, political uh, group, an organisation outside the Republican Party, and that's something that um, Kennedy and uh, Nixon as well did to an extent. How hmm. important do you think um, these, uh, the, the, the magazines and the uh, lists of uh, right. campaigners that were sort of more... Uh, perhaps aligned to Reagan personally than the Republican Party as a whole. How important do you think that was to his success in the um, I mean, Republican was, nomination? He was aligned a little bit more sort of ideologically than mm -hmm. and, and, and the coalitional nature of the Democratic and Republican parties at that time. Yeah. I think that was really important because this was a period, you know, in which um, the party structure was weakening and um, there was a distrust in institutions generally. Mm. Right. And especially in, in a distrust in the uh, Republican Party after Watergate, you know. So um, basically what you're talking about is um, the construction of the infrastructure, kind of a freestanding conservative movement yeah. that can kind of operate independently of uh, the Republican Party. And, you know, the name for this movement was the New Right. And mm. often it was the case that um, people who were um, organizing the New Right, you know, kind of held the Republican Party and, you know, contempt, you know, the Republican Party were the bureaucrats and the trimmers. And it would have been very hard for people. In fact, all through the, the period I'm writing about, uh, the, 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 you know, the willingness of people to tell a pollster that they were Republicans hmm. to, self, to identify those, themselves as Republicans, you know, usually this is kind of a roughly in a two-party system, kind of a 50-50 thing. Yeah. It was down below like 30%, right? So the extraordinary fact that, you know, when Republicans were winning elections in, you know, 1978 in the off-year election, you know, there was one statistic that only 27% of Americans were willing to call themselves Republicans. Well, that might have been the case, right? But they were also willing to say they hated liberals, right? 
and that they yeah. could you know, kind of, that they could identify with Reagan's vision of kind of redeeming the fallen standard of America, you know, uh, by despising liberals, right? Yeah, that's definitely a dynamic that's going on during this period, and it's also a contributor ultimately to much more of the sorting out of the two parties as strict ideological left-right coalitions. Mm. Um, a couple of months ago, we had um, Tim, uh, Tim Stanley on the podcast who yeah. uh, wrote a book, Kennedy uh, versus Carter, about the uh, contest between Senator Kennedy and um, President Carter for the nomination yeah. of uh, the Democratic Party. One of the interesting things that he analysed in the book was how um, early on um, uh, in the campaign, uh, Ted Kennedy was a, a head of President Carter and in some of the polls showed him uh, even ahead of Ronald Reagan. To what extent do you think that had Senator Kennedy become the Democratic uh, Party's nominee for president, that it would have been a different election between him and Reagan and that the Democrats may in fact have retained the White House? I think that the, the incredible uh, popularity he had, you know, that 1978-1979 period that almost instantly started collapsing when he actually, once he actually ran for president, speaks to that kind of same sort of longing for, you know, innocence uh, that Reagan uh, benefited from, uh, that longing for, um, you know, kind of return, in a sense, to the yeah. world before John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And this idea that sort of um, Ronald, Jimmy Carter had, you know, the um, ordeal of actually governing in this period in which there were very few, you know, good choices. You know, same for, you know, period of great turmoil in, you know, British politics, you know, um, you know shuffling through, you know, Heath and, and, and Wills, you know, and, and then a labor and then Thatcher, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just a very messy time to be actually governing. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was, I think it was kind of epiphenomenal mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, that, that Kennedy represented this, uh, the name Kennedy, right? Mm -hmm. Represented this kind of prelapsarian idea in the, in, in the American electorate. But that once actually people um, faced a, a genuine choice and had to actually look at this guy and look at his liabilities and look at the fact that, you know, there was this kind of credible fear that he had allowed this woman's death and the, you know, Chappaquiddick scandal, mm -hmm. uh, that the fact that um, actually when he actually kind of opened his mouth and spoke, he had his own um, almost like psychological barriers, which were quite fascinating, yeah. uh, that he almost kind of seemed to kind of fear the power himself. He was a very conflicted figure. Uh, so I don't really think that he would have been some kind of magic ticket for the Democratic uh, Party uh, uh doing better than they did under Carter because he really was a, a very politically vulnerable figure too. Uh, yeah. I think that those statistics turned out to be very misleading, which was shown by the fact that, you know, he would, he would, you know, 70% of Democrats or something like that wanted him as the nominee. But then when they, when they actually had a chance to vote for him, they chose to vote for, mm. you know, the safer bet. Um, and one thing that I think is also interesting that you pick up on the book and you've mentioned it in um, the discussion uh, that we've just been having is the way that uh, the migration of hate um, in some uh, conservative circles uh, from uh, hate towards um, black people, which following the ending of segregation migrated um, towards um, gay people, members of the LGBT community. I mean, I, I, as you know, like the mm. hate towards black people didn't go away. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no. I, I was, I was more, I was, yeah, yeah. I was more saying about in, in well, terms pluralism of pluralism and their hatred, shall we say? Mm -hmm, yeah, their pluralism. Uh, what I was just wondering is, 
to an extent, do you think that that kind of um, uh, discussion that wasn't seen as being um, perhaps frowned upon, but some conservatives right. uh, were able to have uh, about gay people, do you think that that has moved on today to um, the trans community in the way that some conservatives discuss that yeah. and, and, and talk about the gender debate? Do, do right, think- this, this is the way I would discuss that. I mean, it, conservatism, frequently, especially the kind of conservative populism we're talking about, you know, ha- always has kind of an object of hate and, and, uh, mm. and other, right? Yeah. Uh, it constructs a, 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 you know, kind of a, a normal community and an other. And that the object of the, of, of the hatred can be quite fungible, right? Mm. Um, and it just changes from generation to generation, even as it's very fascinating, the rhetoric can be identical, you know, these kind of yeah. invisible ring pullers from behind the scenes. You know, if you listen, look, look at the way Jews were talked about in the 20s, mm compared to how communists were talked about, uh, to compared to uh, how you know, Muslims and Sharia law were talked about in America you know, during the Bush years, yeah. right? Um, so yes, um, uh, it's, 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 it's pretty much you know, the idea that, um, and then there's of course the tradition and conservative thought uh, that um, sort of the order of the universe is being overturned you know, by some kind of irritant, right? And mm-hmm. obviously gays and lesbians, but then the way, you know, history works itself out, you know, some terrifying new expansion of freedom and dignity for some other group becomes completely routinized, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, no one talked about how the fact that Joe Biden was a Catholic in 2020, mm. you know, whereas that was an enormous issue in 1960 with President Kennedy. So that's the way liberalism works, right? Is that we're always kind of pushing the frontiers of freedom and dignity to some new group that, you know, would have been inconceivable in say like, you know, 1970, you know, or yeah. you know, when 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 the gay rights issue was coming to the fore, right? So you know, this this year, you know, it's kind of uh, trans politics. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty years from now, it'll be something we can't even you know think about. Maybe like yeah. you know, like citizenship for species. You know, like a non-human species. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but the, the the fascinating thing about this dynamic, which you know happens all the time in American politics, is race is, is it remains kind of a transcendent difference uh that racial politics you know and we saw it this year in america with black lives matter and that the fascinating thing about black lives matter is the insult to um kind of white conservative american sense of their self and their dignity that comes from kind of demands for justice from african americans <laughs> Uh, and one of Ronald Reagan's remarkable political powers was his, his ability to kind of absolve people of any sense of guilt. Yeah. And, um, you know, that kind of keeps on, you know, coming back, you know. Um, but again, like I say, you know, a lot of uh, what was going on in Reagan conservatism, you know, uh, expresses itself in the Trump era uh, with just much greater and much more transparent ferocity. Although again, the ferocity was there in the sev- in the in the late seventies too. I write about yeah, upsurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, right? Mm, yeah. And you know, you know, the, the, those of us who study, you know, the, the the political right, you know, talk about you know how important National Review was, mm. you know, but you know there was this there was this uh, transparently, openly, biologically racist magazine called the Spotlight that I point out had like a three or four times bigger circulation at the same time during this period we're talking about. Yeah. Um- one thing, and I was um, rereading um, your 1996 um, essay uh, earlier mm. today, um, Who Owns the 60s? Uh, 
right. um, in which you discuss, you know, the historiography of the 60s and the division between um, writers of that particular period who were uh, alive then and then the new generation of, of which you uh, yourself were a part of. Do you think that in, in terms of um, the historiography and the way that we view uh, the 60s, that since you've written that piece, that much has changed in the way we analyse not just that period, but um, the 70s as well, in, in, in terms of its influence and the way that it didn't perhaps change American uh, politics as much as uh, some people who were part of the uh, movement at the time think it did. Yeah, I think I think it has changed. It's a much richer conversation. It's not as sentimentalized a conversation. You know, a lot of books that were written about the 60s and the 1980s almost had the feel of kind of, um, you know, college yearbooks, like, mm, you know, we're yeah. going through our golden years, you know. Uh, and uh, I don't think Americans have, you know, kind of worked through those traumas of that civil war of the 1960s. So I think a lot, they still kind of, define the order of battle today. I mean, we do have this guy, Donald Trump, who seems to be living in a 60s, 70s kind of um, political, you know, vision, right? Where, you know, yeah. kind of the New, New York where, that he lived in, you know, was defined by, you know, um, vigilante films and things like that. Um, but uh, I think the idea that the 60s was, you know, this kind of groovy time and we all were, when we all kind of wore tie dyes and, you know, march with picket signs and burned our bras, you know, then uh, I think that's uh, been eclipsed by a, a richer conversation. Yeah. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Rick. It's been a great speech, and I've got one final question. Now, I know you've said um, in interviews that you, you chose to end um, the, uh, the, uh, your, your books here um, with, with Reagan Land in 1980, uh, because this is when um, you turned 11 and you didn't want to carry on further than that because you know you would feel it would be um, reporting about your own life and you wouldn't have uh, the distance if you do perhaps decide to write about uh, the decade since then maybe uh, Clinton land or uh, Obama land or, or even Trump land what do you think will be the uh, the key turning point in the the period since then that uh, really changed American politics in the way that uh, Reagan's election uh, really changed the direction of uh, American politics in the in the. Well, I think, I think that the, the 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 thing that's kind of satisfying for me of having written these four books that cover basically roughly the years 1958 to 1980, what's satisfying to me is that I think they pretty much set the order of battle for most of what came since. Uh, mm. There's no kind of giant categories of political discussion, uh, but I think there was a turning point with uh, the rise of Trump. And I, when I was, you know, even in my journalism writing about American politics, I was getting quite bored writing about the right. And I think it was kind of like, I could finish the sentence of, when I would read something about conservatism or the Republican party, I could finish every sentence. Yeah. But I really think Trump introduced something that was <laughs> interesting, <laughs> new and fascinating. So I guess it would be uh, the rise of Trump. None of which, like I say, came from nowhere, mm. uh, but was, um, you know, and I think I appreciate a lot more too that that you know the rise of an authoritarian populist right worldwide was um, you know whether it was whether it was Trump or Trump plus Brexit plus Orban plus what's going on in Poland. I think mm -hmm. that um, maybe maybe um, the rise of 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 a much more kind of um, uh, openly bigoted. Uh, 
um, conservatism, po conservative populism uh, that didn't buy into international institutions in the wake of the, you know, 2008, 2009 financial crisis, I think. Um, thank you uh, again for coming on the podcast, Rick. If anyone wants to uh, order a copy of the book or find out more about you, where should they go? Uh, well, uh, rickperlstein.net uh, has everything you need to know. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.